Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 11th of February 2019 and this is our 100th episode. For this edition, the outgoing president of the WFA, Professor Peter Simpkins, gives us his reflections on the Great War centenary and his life as a First World War historian. I spoke to Peter from his home in Cheltenham. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Now, at the next WFA HR start that again. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. Now, at the next WFA AGM, you're stepping down as president, and we wanted to get your thoughts on our centenary podcast about how public understanding of the Great War has changed over your long and illustrious career, and how the recent centenary of the First World War has affected popular perceptions on the conflict, and how academic discourse about the war has changed over the past few decades. Before we start, could you tell us about your career and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, well, it, it's a fairly winding trail, Tom. Um, like most children of my generation, I was born in 1939. I, I was obviously involved in a minor sense in the Second World War. Uh, so one learned how to identify aircraft and the sound of a buzz bomb. And one saw one's dad going off to fight in Northwest Europe and so on. So... Uh, and there was a kind of military interest, if you like. And, and this developed into a love for history uh, at school, and particularly in the sixth form, when I really began to sort of enjoy reading history. Uh, so it wasn't surprising that I chose history to read at university, which in my case was King's College London. Which, that particular point has a quite important influence on my life when I attended my first day at King's College London um, we were given a list of special subjects one of which we had to take and there were things like the economic consequences of the Black Death and Church and State under Henry II and I thought I mm, don't much fancy any of those and right at the bottom was a subject called Whit war and military organization in the west i think it was 1815 to 1918 or something like that um, and i chose that and uh, it just turned out that the, my tutor in that particular special subject was uh, michael howard now professor sir michael howard one of the most distinguished military historians of the 20th century so he inspired me. I thought well, by the end of my course, I, you know, I want to be like him. I became a military historian. So where did you start your career? Well, through Michael Howard, um, uh, I, I was given a job for uh, a year and a half or so uh, as archivist and uh, research assistant to the late Captain Sir Basil Little Hart who in the early 60s when I joined him was um, one of the most famous military writers of all. Um, 
and uh, this was a, a job which cemented my career path, as it were. Uh, Little Heart, in particular, had uh, helped to shape people's views of the First World War uh, and uh, many other topics. And it, it was a bit like living with Socrates in a way. And you know, I was a 22-year-old green graduate, and uh, I was exposed to this famous and brilliant mind for 18 months or so. When when I came to the end of my uh, sort of time with Little Heart on behalf of King's College, I naturally looked for employment elsewhere, and uh, a job at the Imperial War Museum came up as research and information officer with Michael Howard and Little Heart as my referees. So I, I stood a fair chance of getting that, as you'll understand. So. Uh, which I did, and I joined the Imperial War Museum in that capacity in September 1963 and left in 1999. So my most of my working career was uh, spent at the IWM over 35 years. Um, interesting, I have a similar story. I actually went to King's and read history with Brian Bond and then worked briefly at the Lido Hart Centre for Military Archives. So I suppose there, there is a... Um, a Symbi- symbiotic relationship there. Yeah, I? yeah. I mean, Brian Bond was very much uh, a disciple of both Michael Howard and Basil Littlehart. And it, 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 I'm sure Brian wouldn't mind me mentioning that uh, Littlehart's gardener was Brian Bond's dad. So Brian was very much a, a boy of the village who was uh, inspired and, and sort of mentored by Basil Littlehart. And he was one of the first generation of brilliant young historians who Michael Howard nurtured and inspired. So, uh, I, 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 in a sense, I was a slightly a step ahead of Brian there, but uh, Brian was very much the forerunner of many distinguished historians like Keith Simpson and John Gooch, who, who at one time or another studied under Michael Howard. What What is your specific interest in the Great War and what particular units have you focused on? Well, I, I'm particularly interested in what I call the middle management level of the British Army in the First World War. People have accused me of being Anglo-centric and concentrating entirely on the British Army, but when, when I started on the Great War path in the 1970s, uh, um, you know, we didn't know very much at all about the British Army in the First World War and I I dedicated myself in that sense to sort of an understanding of the way it was organised, its infrastructure, who commanded it, not just at the top but who commanded it at the middle and lower levels, uh, what its community links were, there were a vast number of questions, you know, morale, discipline, one could go on. So uh, I felt that until the British scholarly community had really fully explored these sort of aspects, um, it wasn't much point in trying to understand the French or German armies. Since uh, I uh, took part in that process, of course, you know, people like Bill Philpott at King's College London have done a great deal of work in the, on the French army, and, and rightly so. 
so we've got now got a much broader understanding of the, of the sort of Allied war effort as a whole. Uh, but I, I, I remain unapologetic about my concentration on the, the, the sort of Britishness of the First World War because uh, until we understood that properly, I don't think we could understand anything else. So when you started your career in the early 60s, what was the popular understanding of the Great War and how, if any, has this changed over, over recent years? As far as public understanding goes, uh, I, I have very much a double message for the 60s because on the one hand, this was the age of miniskirts and the swinging 60s and the Beatles and so on. So... Uh, on the one hand, uh, our image of the Great War was sort of, you know, working class sacrifice uh, at, at, the, at the behest of the Toffs. Um, so you had a kind of left of left wing anti-establishment agenda on the one hand, uh, as, as reflected in things like the production of Oh What a Lovely War, uh, Alan Clark's book The Donkeys. Uh, on the other hand, you had uh, the fact that many of the veterans of the Great War were then still alive. Indeed, um, I knew some of them, including a, a BC winner called Joe Bent, who won his BC on the Western Front in 1914. So you were getting a kind of double flow of information. And in the middle of this uh, maelstrom, uh, sat the late John Terrain, who was publishing his uh, book, Douglas Haig, The Educated Soldier, which gave quite a different interpretation of generalship on the Western Front. So it, it, it was an interesting time, in as much as there were two strands of interpretation of the First World War, on the one hand, in almost entirely negative, uh, on the other hand, uh, somebody who saw something positive and I think those two strands uh, went side by side for the next two or three decades. And what was the popular perception of the Great War? Obviously you know our view of, view of it today is very much shaped by Blackadder but did, did that sort of butchers and bunglers view of the Great War exist in the 60s? It, I, I think that was probably the predominant view. Uh, it was not unchallenged but uh, People like Little Heart had helped to create that, and while Basil Little Heart was still alive, it, it, it very much held the centre of the stage, I think. And one of the reasons why, retrospectively, John Terrain is so much admired is that he, he had the guts to challenge that. Um, there, there was a turning point in the 1970s, which I personally detected, and it's about when I became on the path, uh, sort of set foot on the path to becoming a First War Specialist. Uh, and there were several factors, if I may, which sort of began to change the balance um, from the butchers and bunglers approach. The first was the opening of the public archives, I think. Uh, that at last, those young scholars who had been inspired by Michael Howard and others to take a more academic and scholarly approach to the subject began to have genuine access to the National Archives so at last one could read 
not only published memoirs but unpublished papers, uh, war diaries of units, and, and so on and so forth. So uh, we 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 were able to at last sort of bedrock the subject on some sort of archive-based scholarship. But then there were technical helps uh, when I first started researching. Uh, at the public record offices that then was uh, people in brown coats and white gloves brought documents to you. It took an age to get them and you could only make notes in pencil and so therefore you needed a sort of stack of HB pencils and a pencil sharpener handy. It was all very antiquated and so on. So um, the changes in access helped a great deal Thirdly, uh, there were major collections of private papers being built up, principally by the IWM, but also by Peter Liddell at Sunderland and then Leeds. Uh, you got technical aids like the cassette recorder, so while there were veterans and people still around who served in the Great War, you actually interviewed them. And then there was a, a growth in two things. One was family history, uh, which continues to this day. The other was the start of systematic battlefield tours, which was related, I think, originally to family history. At the end of this process, uh, the, the WFA itself was founded. So between 1970 and 1982, I think the, the ability to research uh, grew immensely uh, whatever particular line you took. I might add that there were a number of sort of important books in this respect too. Uh, Martin Middle books, first day on the Somme, John Keegan's The, the Face of Battle, which um, were seminal works in that they inspired a lot of young historians to sort of re-look at the First World War from a slightly different perspective to the Little Hearts and John Lappin's sort of rubbishing the generals. Uh, and it was a kind of bottom-up history, if you like, you know, what happened to private blogs on the first day of the song. As you point out, there's been a massive change in terms of the historiography and, and academic views of the Great War, but popular perceptions still remain uh, solidly in the butchers and bunglers. Yeah, obviously, we've got Blackadder, and I've dealt with media inquiries. You know, I've been the um, WFA's media officer, and the press still want to, you know, look at the whole sort of first day of the Somme sacrifice, blood, uh, and incompetence of the generals. Why do you think that perception has remained so solid in the public sphere? Um mainly laziness on the part of the media, I would suggest. That, uh, it, it, I, I mean, the number of times I've seen that shot on First World War clips, uh, whether documentaries or news items, of the, the, the troops supposedly going over the top on the Somme, which we all know was done at a training school miles behind the lines. Um, the, the myths have long since been exploded by academics but the, the media can't, in my view, be bothered to, with exceptions, I might add, but the, on the whole, the media sort of take the easy way out. And, uh, it, it, it's so much easier for them to just trot out the old cliches than uh, you know, go to the filing cabinet or the computer record and 
and just simply reproduce what's gone before. Uh, I think the, that that's where I think the main problem is. Uh, the WFA, I think, has done much to sort of, in outreach terms, try and pr promote a proper balanced understanding of the First World War in schools. My view is that the universities have completely changed in my time. Consensus of, uh, you know, what what the revisionists such as me call uh, the learning process in the First World War on the Western Front, I think is now pretty firmly established in academia and to some extent in, in the, the better teaching in schools. So I think we probably won that battle, but it's the, still the media um, who are basically the purveyors of the wrong message. And we've just come out, obviously, the centenary of the Great War. Do you think that made any difference to tackling public, uh, pro public perceptions of the Great War? I, th I think uh, it did in m many ways. Uh, I, I was, like other officers of the WFA, involved in some of the big centenary events. And one did not detect, I think, uh, at Pete Bell in 2016 or Tyne Cot in 2017, and either, on the one hand, a triumphalist approach uh, or be... Um, a negative approach. I, I think the the academic consensus of, of sort of a balanced view of the Great War has sufficiently percolated these uh, big events to uh, to avoid the worst excesses of the past. And and the people who were interviewed by the BBC and other media organisations at these events, I think I think on the whole put forward a balanced point of view. Uh, but having said that, I, I, I still detect the fact that, uh, you know, it, the butchers and bunglers view is almost impossible to shift. I would argue that that might be even more emphasised in one or two of the Commonwealth countries. I think uh, views in Australia despite the fact that uh, some of the most brilliant historians of the Great War are lodged in Australia, I think, you know, the ANZAC interpretation is still very much hold sway and is almost, uh, sort of, almost a religious uh, observance. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can point to all sorts of great historians like Bobby Pryor, Trevor Wilson, Tim Cook in Canada, Chris Pugsley in New Zealand have, have done an immense service to Great War studies. One wonders whether even in those countries uh, the myth has been entirely sort of broken. And who do you think are some of the most influential scholars that have emerged in the last 20 years, obviously with your good self um, excluded from this category? Well, I think uh, there are a number of um, um, I would particularly point to John Bourne uh, at both Birmingham and Wolverhampton uh, as being an inspiration to many. Uh, and, and John helped to shape the MA courses, which are now so popular at uh, Wolverhampton and Birmingham, um, and are producing a lot of very good 
sort of historians in the, in their later years. Uh, people uh, who studied under John Bourne as mature students, uh, sometimes in their fifties or sixties, including people like Peter Hodgkinson, Alison Hine, Trevor Harvey, who produced absolutely excellent scholarly works on the uh, First World War. Uh, that's one strand of uh, a great achievement, and, and of course Gary Sheffield is an immense figure in, in the field uh, as well. Um, Jonathan Boff, uh, Amy Fox, I, I could go on and list a, a large number of people who've um, distinguished themselves uh, both before and after their teaching by the above figures. And but there are, there are many, and uh, Spencer Jones, many other younger historians who uh, are following suit. Steve Badsey, he's not younger than Spencer, admittedly, but, uh, you know, I, I could go on quoting a list of people who have firmly established uh, military studies in academia and produced great work. And what do you think we've still got to learn about the First World War? Well... <laughs> The, the list again is probably immense. Um, we we have yet, I think, that there's been some great work in in the relationship between communities at home and units at the front. Uh, but uh, for all the work of people like Helen McCartney and Alison Hine and others, we still need to have a much greater understanding and a more accurate understanding of. The, of the contribution of individual communities to the First World War. Um, one of the media sort of cliches is that uh, whenever you talk about the Somme, the words Accrington Powell's always loom into view. And this is no disrespect to the Accrington Powell's or their sacrifice in the First World War. It's just symbolic of the sort of ready grab for the cliche which uh, the media tends to follow uh, and I think we need to rid ourselves of that so that the, the more wider research we do uh, both at the academic but I must emphasize at local branch level in the WFA where which is the bedrock of what I call local community knowledge and links I, I think that's where we need to really keep the ball rolling firmly. I'm a great believer in the the ability and dedication of the local branches of the WFA to, to amplify and, and augment our knowledge of, of the Great War. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Okay. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.